Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. And I'm your other host, Karen Greenhouse. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast. And today we are joined by Tabitha Delangelo. Am I saying that right, Tabitha? Yep, that's right. Okay, awesome. Um, she is a professor of education at the College of New Jersey. She runs a teacher education program with a focus on equity and social justice. Her research is focused on teacher identity, and she primarily u- utilizes arts-based research methodologies. So welcome, Tabitha. We really appreciate you spending this hour with us. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for asking. And could you explain a little bit more about what it is you teach and specifically what you mean by arts-based research methodologies? Because I think that's going to be a nice lead-in into the research paper or comic, I'm going to say, that you just released. So maybe a little bit of explanation, background of what you actually do, and then we can start talking about that down the rabbit hole that just came out. Sure, yeah. So um, so I teach at the College of New Jersey, and I'm in a teacher ed program. Um, the courses I teach, uh, you know, we're a small school, so I teach a lot of different courses. So I teach child and adolescent development. I teach research. Um, I run the urban education program. That's a program that I created about 11 years ago. So in that program, there are specialized courses that focus on the social and political context of education. So I teach a class called Intro to Urban Ed. It has another name that's Schooling in the American Dream. Um, I teach a course called Critical Pedagogy. So I teach a lot of different classes that are really meant to, um, you know, to lead to teacher certification and specifically in my urban education program. Um, As most professors do, we also uh, are engaged in a lot of research. So my research has been primarily focused on figuring out what can we do to better recruit people who want to teach in high-needs areas with kids who are you know, often marginalized and school districts that are often underperforming. So how do we recruit teachers to teach in those areas? And then how do we train them and support them in a way that makes them want to stay? Because we know that across the board, there's a lot of turnover in teachers. Um, You know, first five years, we lose tons. And in urban schools, that's even more profound. So I've always been really interested in uh, finding ways to communicate research so that everybody can access it and benefit from it. So often, like when we publish things for academic journals, the only people who read them are other academics. Right, exactly. Well, you mean, they're so entertainingly written. I I find them (laughs) captivating. Um. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like, you know, because we all, you know, we're all just super interested in like the p-values and, you know, multivariate statistics. And, you know, so maybe you you two probably are because you're like math nerds, but the the most of the world, you know. (laughs) But, you know. It's a badge of honor. It is a badge of honor, I know. Um, But anyway, so I've always been really troubled by that, that like we have to put in all of this work to do this research, to publish it in places that the only people who read it are other academics. And it just, I don't know, it just felt hypocritical. Like we're saying that our mission is to try to move the needle and improve the situation for kids and families and teachers, but we're not really part of that community. So I was always like, I'm sort of a 
frustrated artist. I, you know, I feel like Tina Fey like stole my career. Like that's how I was supposed to be Tina Fey. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, so I've always done improv and art and photography and that's, you know, that's really where my passion was. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, how can I bring these things together? And so there is this whole, um, world in educational research that's arts-based educational research. And it takes a few different forms. One of them is like art in, right, where people might take photographs or create visual arts projects or whatever, and then they analyze the art pieces and write something very traditional. So there might be art in, but traditional things on the way out, right? So a more traditional paper. And then the other um, kind of arts-based research is like art out, which is, that's what I've been doing. So I do very traditional research in that I might collect surveys, do uh, interviews, do observations, take field notes, all of that. And I do very traditional data analysis, like I'm doing thematic coding and, you know, all of that good stuff. But then what I do in terms of the analysis is I produce an art project, uh, an art product on the way out. So for quite a few years, I was writing plays. So I would do all of this research. I would collect data, do interviews with new teachers, observe them in their classroom, and then write short plays that were staged that communicated the research. So it was like, you know, how can I bring this big community out to learn about what the research says in a way that's accessible to everyone? So even on the Bucks County Playhouse stage, I had uh, one of my my plays was performed there. Um, actually, two were, were performed with Bucks County Playhouse. Which is a really amazing venue. Yeah. Tabitha and I live on the same street, F- FYI. So that's how I know about the Bucks County. Yeah. It's all, you know, it's <laughs> awesome. But then, you know, as, as, most of you could probably imagine staging a play is, uh, it's a big deal. It's a big undertaking. Yeah. It's like money and casting and, and, you know, rehearsals and all of this stuff. And so I thought, well, how, you know, what else can I do to communicate this research that's not quite so, you know, work intensive. Um, And I was working with a student artist who had the, who, you know, was an amazing illustrator. And I gave her my script and I said, all right, what do you think? Can you help me turn this into a comic? And so Down the Rabbit Hole is actually the second comic, uh, both based on scripts, on, on short play scripts that she helped me adapt to comics. And so the second one was just published. And this is a, it's a big deal. Actually, I know it probably doesn't seem like it would be, but it's, it's kind of a big deal to get academic journals to publish a comic. <laughs> I was actually going to ask that because I know how hard it is, like, you know, because I've done research and try to get it accepted in things and they're just so rigid in their, I don't know, rules that it has to pass. So I am very curious about that because in peer-reviewed journals, it's hard. it would be hard to get into that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was definitely baby steps. Like the first comic was actually published in a journal called um, the Journal of Comic Scholarship. Hmm. So the fact that that even exists is like magical. (laughs) So that got published. And so now it's like, oh, you know, that's out there. Now I can share that and people might, you know, start to think this is interesting. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm interested in this. And then there's another journal called 
qualitative inquiry, which is actually like a big deal to get published in there. And I was able to publish an article based on the down the rabbit hole play. And I think because that's like a top tier journal and that got some attention and I was able to, I actually published the script and everything as part of that article. You know, I think that what happened is I I just sort of had to like baby step, baby step. And then this recent uh, comic got published in a special issue of a journal that was called Beautiful Experiments. And so their whole focus was on different ways to communicate research. And so I just like, but but it's like, it's like shopping at TJ Maxx. Like you got to search the racks, <laughs> you know, and I just had to sort of search academia for spaces that would be accepting. I mean, I, uh, and by the way, we will provide the link to the Down the Rabbit Hole comic that you all can look at. But, you know, I went through it and it is amazing to me because it's depicting um, a first year teacher, a new teacher's experience in the first year. And I totally can connect to everything in the comic. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that's it. That happens that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was easy to forget that this was based on research because it was so authentic and felt very real. Mm -hmm. And one of the, you know, I mean, this is real research, right? So one of the, the, the steps that I take is called member checking. So in member checking, what you do is any, you know, any analysis that you do, you give it back to the folks that you interviewed or that you observed, and you give them a chance to say either this represents what I said or what I was feeling, or it doesn't, and you need to fix it. You know, so that that's part of the rigor of the of the research. And so I think the reason it rings true for so many people is because I didn't overstep. I literally just gave back what was given to me. Well, I was I was fascinated by it. And and it actually makes me think because my my research that I did for my doctorate was also qualitative and it was about, you know, professional development. And I did the same thing with member checks, you know, and went back and had them read through. And I, as I was reading the comic, I was thinking, huh, I wonder if mine could be turned into a comic. Because it's just so much more interesting. You know, I didn't have to work around all the quotation or the citations. Like, how do you get around that um, aspect? Because that's, to me, one of the things that makes research so horrible to read is like every sentence has like all these parentheses and the quotes and the, you know, the citations. It interferes with the reading. Yeah. Well, you don't get around it completely. I mean, in in the down the rabbit hole, I, you know, even there's an abstract that has a couple references. I mean, I had to, I had to provide some context. But if you, if you looked at the qualitative inquiry article that has the whole script, like the actual script, um, there's a decent amount of still the traditional scholarly stuff uh, or else a journal like that one wouldn't have published it. So I want to go on a bit of a tangent and ask both of you, since you're both teacher educators, as you look at your field, what's one thing you're like, you know what, we're really good. We're starting to nail this in terms of preparing those first year teachers and get down that 50% attrition number. Like, is there something that you guys feel positively about in your field? And then conversely, what is one of the big challenges that you think you find that your field that like you guys really are struggling to address? Well, I mean, what I want, one thing I think that we're doing a little bit better, and I can't speak across the board, but in our program came directly from interviews 
of from my alum. I mean, part of why I do this research is so that I can learn from them. You know, you're out in the field. What could we have done better? And one thing that kept coming up was they felt like when they were in the program, we made it sound like you know, you're going to be social justice warriors and you're going to get out there and you're going to change the world. And, you know, and it's somehow magically the power of who you are is going to be this like Hollywood story. And they said, then we go out, we get out here and it's not like that at all. And we get a lot of pushback. We get pushback from our colleagues. We get pushback from, you know, the the school district. And then we're sort of forced to either you know, mold ourselves to the status quo or be alienated or we're just going to leave, you know, because we can't do what we say we're going to do. And so one thing that we've done in, in my program is that we're real honest with them about the the kinds of obstacles they are going to face and that it's not going to be magical and some days are not going to be beautiful. And um, what are you going to do when those when you get hit with the inevitable obstacles. So we're trying to to make it so that they're not caught off guard by the challenges that are surely gonna face them. Um, so that that's one thing that I think we're doing a little bit better. And I would agree with that. Like I, I'm in the Drexel um, teacher education program and they really pride themselves on getting the teachers in the school so they can actually have those experiences, not just the, you know, like when we went to school, it was, you had what, 10 weeks in in your practice teaching session, you know, so that didn't really give you a real perspective. So they are making a much more of an effort of get them in there many times and in different types of environments at the beginning of the school, at the end of the school, so that they're really seeing, you know, what happens in a classroom and working collaborative, almost like internships with um, teachers and stuff. So I think that's getting better. But but you're, you're down the rabbit hole thing where it basically is you come in with this bright, rosy picture of what teaching is going to be like, and you then have all the constraints that are thrown at you. And um, that is something that I, I still think we struggle with. Mm-hmm. But I would agree with you. We we do that in my program too, in terms of lots of different field experiences. Um, because if you think about it, you know, like who really knows when they're eighteen what they want to do for the rest of their lives? But exactly. when you, if you decide you're going to become a teacher, it's a professional school. So at eighteen, nineteen years old, you're making a big decision. <laughs> and yeah, if you right? don't get a chance to be with kids and be in in schools um, to figure out, like, does this fit? you know, that's a real problem. So I I think you're right. I think that early and often in the field during the program is also super smart. So Tabitha, you also indicated that you uh, are deeply involved in urban education and the challenges of urban education, which would lead me to believe you have a, a commitment to this idea of equity in education. So my first question to you is, what does equity mean to you in education? Well, I mean, you know, at this point, I feel like everybody everybody knows what equity is at the very least from, you know, that meme that was going around forever that that tried to parse out the difference between equality and equity, right? So, um, you know, equality is everybody gets the same thing. Equity is everybody gets what they need, right? That's super oversimplified. I, I, I understand that. Um, but, I, but I think that one of the... Um, one of the 
the big pieces of of equity is really thinking about inclusivity across all all identities, right? So not, you know, so we're thinking about race and gender and sexual orientation and religion and ability status and regionality and language and all of these things. And that's, a, it's a lot. Um, and it's a lot, especially when you think about the demographics of, of teachers who are largely white middle-class women. And so if if you're a if I'm a white middle class woman and I went all through school in a very monocultural school system where I was not really asked to think about my own identity or my positionality in relation to other people, then going into a, a school district like Trenton, New Jersey, which is where I work, or Philadelphia or New York or you know any of those places um, makes it such that it's it's hard to really um, achieve equity unless you're willing to be uncomfortable. And so I think that you know my focus on on equity is about giving all kids what they need um, but that means that, there's a lot of work on the part of the teacher to do a lot of self-reflection, like real critical self-reflection, um, challenging their own biases, being willing to be uncomfortable, being willing to listen, uh, to be wrong, you know, all of those things. And, uh, and that's, that's a tough, it's a, it's a, it's a tough ask for, for a lot of uh, teachers, especially, you know, 22-year-old, 23-year-old, um, you know, kids for the, for in a large part i don't know does that answer your question <laughs> like, it does I, I mean the reason i ask i ask for a very selfish reason i uh last night i had a long conversation with a mutual friend of greenhouses and mine from milwaukee um who may be listening to this podcast so hi mary if you're listening we talked about the podcast last night um but what i shared with her as a as someone who was a practitioner and then went and did curriculum and now this is my first year back in the classroom in several years so I've done the reading on equity in education and this idea of um, how dominant cultures have affected pedagogy and needing to empower student learning and the understanding of content as students get it. And like that all makes perfect sense to me as I read about it in a book or I can't admit to ever reading scholarly journals. It's been a while, but I have no clue as to how, like, well, how does, how do I put that into my practice? Like, how does that affect how I get through that 70 minute class? And I'm really struggling with that. Um, so I'm curious to hear from both of you as people who work with teachers and try to prepare them with these, um, this kind of awareness of what wisdom you would share with humble me. Well, I mean, one thing I would say is, is, is to, is to question everything. You know, we know one thing we know from research is that you could go through a four-year or five-year teacher ed program. We could teach you all of these innovative ideas. And what most teachers do is go back and recreate their own K-12 experience. And so we don't want that. So we want you to question, you know, why am I teaching this book? What, you know, who decided what books are going to be on my bookshelf? Is this a representation of our curriculum that is colonized by, you know, white Europeans? You know, are there different decisions that I could be making in terms of whose voices are heard and whose voices aren't heard? Um, even something like deficit model thinking, you know, the idea of 
you know, tutoring, for instance, um, is really kind of like a a deficit perspective that like these kids need to be fixed. So we're going to offer extra help when really like maybe the curriculum needs to be fixed. You know, if a kid is behaving in a way that isn't working in your classroom, are they misbehaving? Or are they trying to tell you something? Right. So everything is about like, am I willing to reframe the ways that I've been socialized to imagine a reality that is decolonized, if that's possible. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's also a need to have patience as a teacher, as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old who are wonderfully wise and wonderfully don't always have like a broader perspective and like, I know what this should be. I think there's a combination of that awareness plus an awareness of the fact that some of those things that you just addressed are systemic issues for which we need to continually question and continually have that conversation, but have the patience with ourselves our, and our schools to know that it's going to take a while. Some of those curriculum decisions are based on standards or based on an assessment. We can have a whole nother conversation about standards and assessment, but point being that you're questioning, but at the same time, there are certain systemic structures that are there that as a classroom teacher, I can't change. Yeah, may I don't know. I mean, when you think about the, I I don't know what standards you work with, right? But there are a lot of standards like the com, even the com, I'm not one of these like common core ate my baby people, right? But if you look at the common core standards, right? Um a lot of them are very open-ended. They're like, you know, we're going to students need to be able to learn how to analyze text, but they don't tell you what text to use, right? So like what if, you know, you could use, you can analyze a photograph, you can analyze a painting. Do you have to analyze, does it have to be Romeo and Juliet? Could it be something else? You know, so I don't, um, I don't know if I, I do know that there are structures in place, but those, I don't know that the structures have been questioned. Have they been pushed? Where do we have the ability to push? I, you know, I don't know. Um, I think we've got more freedom than we, then we exercise sometimes. And I think what I was going to say was sort of along that line, because I actually teach um, teachers. So they're teachers who are already in the classroom and they're getting their master's, right? So they're in those environments already. And so I get a lot of pushback. Oh, well, I like what we're doing in this class where it's open-ended and students should have their own choice and how they choose to solve the problem, blah, blah, blah. But I can't do that because they have to follow this curriculum. And that to me is what I would advise or suggest is, yes, you have your, your curriculum and your standards, but you are a professional and you know what is going to be good for your students. So trust yourself. And if you think this resource is better than the textbook that you get in, then go ahead and use it because it's really the how, how you get there is your professional decision. That's why you are a teacher. So that's I think along those same lines is trust your own expertise. And if you feel like there's a better way to help the students, then use that. It's okay to veer off the path a little bit. All right. I think we're screaming agreement, but I'm going to push back on both of you on this because I think it'll, it'll be fun. Um, <laughs> but I mean, Greenhouse, what you just said, isn't that the same kind of thing we hear from the incredibly traditional teacher who's at a school that isn't incredibly traditional and says, I know what's best, so this is what I'm going to do? Sure. I mean, is there not, is there not, some, is there not some obligation to, as a teacher to um, be a part of a school's instructional vision and be aware of the fact that what you do in your classroom 
has a snowball effect as students move forward and they leave your room? Right. Well, I guess what I'm actually encouraging, what we encourage in our program is you are now going to be that voice of change in your school, right? Like, so you're learning these methods and these strategies. And even if you're the only one in your school that's now doing them, you've, you have that leadership um, responsibility, I guess, to share. And so in our program, there's a huge emphasis on collaboration and working with your colleagues to make change systemic. And so that's something that we encourage in our program as well, is that don't just be the teacher in your classroom doing what you think is right. Try to change the others in your your thing. So we're giving them tools to do that as well. So, yeah, no, it's that ripple in the, when you throw a pebble in a pond, it's sort of that idea that we're getting across to them. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's how I kind of look at it is start the change. Yeah, and also, I mean, I feel like, Tim, there's an assumption in your question that if we do something different, that somehow the students will suffer for it in the future, when actually, what if they what if they all benefit from it, right? Like, what if we, you know, you know, something that's that's been coming up a lot lately is the way we teach African American history as if it started with slavery, right? And how detrimental that is to all kids, not just black kids, but in particular black and brown kids, but for all kids to imagine that like that's the beginning of African American history is slavery. And what would happen if we had a more um, comprehensive understanding of African American history that didn't necessarily start with slavery or that had more of a focus on the strengths-based um, perspectives of African culture. Is that going to hurt kids in the future? No. You know, if anything, you might actually get them more excited about history because it's going to you know, maybe turn on their on their head what they thought they already knew. Maybe they'll perk up and be like, "Oh, you know, this is new information." So, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't think that there's. Um, I, I just don't. I don't see it as a problem. Although I do think that if again, if we're looking at it from a very monoculture European uh, lens, um, it might feel uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Well, I think it does come back to that uncomfortable because um, if you are trying to change how things are traditionally done, you are going to come up against obstacles and be uncomfortable and have to defend often what you're doing. And I think that's maybe the the struggle. It's, it's hard to get new teachers to do that or even like the teachers that I'm in my master's program they're embedded in this culture and it's hard to get them to want to change others because it is uncomfortable. This is complicated for me. Because <laughs> philosophically, I agree with both of you. So I, I don't want to come across as a total jerko here. Um, <laughs> but part of me is like, well, are we not just swinging the pendulum from the new teacher who goes into a school and like, all right, I have to do what everybody tells me to do because this is the way to do it. And I'm new to the going into an institution with uh, um, the gift of new experience and new wisdom 
Um, but the challenge of lack of perspective and saying, well, I'm right. I don't care what you think. No, I don't think you do that. I mean, years ago, I had a professor at Penn. His name was Mort Botel. And I think he had originally wrote all of the curriculum standards for Pennsylvania. He was like an old hippie. And I remember he was like super progressive. But he said, when you're a new teacher, you don't go in there and tell people about themselves. You listen first. You figure out, you know, what's going on. You learn the culture. You figure out who your allies are. Like you know, you learn. You le- you first listen, and then you figure out how can I be useful. And so I I don't think that new teachers should go in and you know with like I'm burning this system down. I do think that we all need to know our place and figure out where where we can be useful and not tell other people how they should change because there's there's often good things happening everywhere that, you know, that could go unnoticed. Um, but on the other hand, that there are folks like Bettina Love who talk about, you know, an abolitionist approach to teaching. And they will say, well, you know, we were not going to reform slavery. That would have been a bad idea. We needed to abolish slavery. And so, and I think that in schools right now, there are practices that need to be abolished because we've been tinkering for decades and things are not getting better. That was a provocative statement. So would you mind sharing an example of uh, what you what you mean by with something that should be abolished? Yeah, like I think the way we teach history needs to be completely redone. Um, I think we don't we I mean, look, there's there's deck. I think it's Lowen. Lowen is his name. He's the guy who wrote the lies my teacher told me. And then more recently, he wrote another volume about history. And and he he's did all this analysis of um, like K-12 history textbooks and then talked to college history professors and found that we do a terrible job of teaching history to the point where we not only miss things, but we we literally teach things that are not true. And so college history professors are constantly having to reteach um, because we've we've watered things down and we've we've boiled social studies down to just dates and people which is incredibly boring like if we if we taught the real conflict right you know like these binaries these conflicts these you know exciting things in history kids would have a more affective connection to them and actually remember the dates and people. But we've stripped all of that because we're so interested in American exceptionalism and boiling it down to like, you know, westward expansion and completely, you know, look, I've got a native scholar friend. So we've talked about like the the border wall has been getting talked about forever. Do you know why there are huge sections of the border that don't have a wall? Because they are tribal lands and we are not allowed to build a wall on them. But kids don't, they don't learn like simple things. Why not? Because we're so interested in American exceptionalism and westward expansion and, you know, and it's just like U.S. history, that. To me, I mean, this is not going to get me elected to the school board. I'm going to tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I'm maybe we on should it. maybe we should post this after the election. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but I think that that you the way we teach social studies needs to be torn down and rebuilt. And why aren't we doing civics? We don't teach civics. I don't get it. Like things that would be useful to kids and. So that's an ex- that's an example of something I think that should be completely redone. Well, and, and, and related to that, I mean, 
it's so inconsistent across the states, right? So the history you get in Virginia is completely different from the history you learn if you're in Texas, right? Because it's all geared toward state. What am I trying to say? Identity. So we're not even consistent across the country. So there's lack of content and all of that. It's crazy. My permanent residence is Texas. We are our own country. We just pretend to be one of the states. (laughs) (laughs) My my kids uh, ended their schooling, K-12 schooling there. So yeah. But I will say, like we think about social studies, social studies, and I'm not advocating for testing, but social studies is one of the last areas that doesn't have a standardized test attached. So this is an area where where history teachers, social studies teachers can actually be super creative and and do what they think is right because there's no standardized test, at least not in Pennsylvania. And and I think there are, I think there are 26 states that don't have a standardized test attached. I would have to check that. But um, so I've I also want to give credit to some of the most creative and innovative teachers that like my son has had have been social studies teachers. So because I think social studies teachers have a little bit more academic freedom. Well, yeah, because the standardized testing, I mean, just speaking from the math thing, has totally ruined the way mathematics is taught because it tends to be focused on process and skill versus true mathematical thinking because of standardized testing. And so you're right. I mean, the standardized testing makes such a difference in how and what is taught. All right, I'm saving my question, Greenhouse. I'm not going to ask it because you want it. What's the question? Because well, I, really I really want Tabitha. Tabitha is running for our local school board. And just the whole experience of that, I think, has been very eye-opening. It, I follow it on Facebook. So I wanted her to share, you know, why did you decide to run for school board, first of all? And I feel like some of it has to do with what is happening with your own kids in schools and then your perspective on, you know, the education. But then also, you know, what's, what is the whole process like of just running? And Tim can also help speak to that since he ran for school board himself back in Dubuque. So Tabitha, what made you decide, first of all, that running for school board was going to be on your agenda? Because I know it is a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, I years ago, I thought of running for school board. I had this idea like, oh, I'm going to run for school board. But I really didn't even understand what school board was. And um, I had just moved into our little borough. And I thought, you know what? Let me, again, like my old professor's advice. Let me learn. Let me listen. Let me see what people care about here and find out, like, can I be useful? Um, And over the years, I've gone to a bunch of school board meetings, and I've been really surprised at how often our teachers will make a very reasoned recommendation. Like, they'll recommend a textbook that's like, you know, a great textbook based on their professional knowledge. And folks from the school board will say, no, I don't like that, you know, (laughs) or they'll, will come and I went to one curriculum meeting where a teacher presented this whole gorgeous curriculum that was related to, um, uh, was like sort of like an integrated engineering sort of program. And in their presentation, they talked about how the work that they wanted the kids to do was much more about process than product. And they wanted the kids to really, you know, take risks and and reflect on those risks and reflect on what they learned. And one of the school board members had to make this like grandstand about 
that she thought reflection was ridiculous. And, you know, and I'm like, whoa, you know, like the teachers are coming with solid professional knowledge and school board members who are not educators are, are just, you know, they have these weird gut reactions based on, I don't even know what, and really they're overstepping because school board members are not supposed to be involved in the day-to-day. They're governance, they're not managers, right? But our school board, they they overstep a little bit. I think they overstep a little bit. And I think that they really need to defer to the experts more often. Um, and so those kinds of things were really bugging me. And I'm like, I, I feel like our teachers, our counselors, our nurses, our, our aides, like everybody, I feel like they need an advocate on this board. They need somebody who actually understands what it's like to teach, to work in a public school, because, um, they they don't have that right now, or they they don't they do have it actually. Our school board has it a little bit, but it's it's skewed on the other end. And what happens with school boards is that they they are collective. So if there are nine people on the school board and only two are really advocating for um, for teachers, those two are just going to keep losing the votes, and that is also, you know, sort of soul crushing to to not have a a board of people who are engaging in in conversations that are um or not willing to be challenged, not willing to change their minds. You know, I listen to school board meetings sometimes it's very clear that everybody already showed up and had made up their mind. So people come in with public comment or there's a conversation that doesn't even matter because everybody already decided how they're going to vote. You know, so anyway, um, I must be a glutton for punishment that I, you know, well, actually I didn't even decide right away I was going to run, but it was like nobody was going to run. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is the time I'm going to do it. So, so I jumped in. Wait, but wasn't there, um, there was a vacated seat or something, right? Well, there was a vacated seat and that's what I initially put my name in just to be like the interim person. And there were eight of us who put our names in and, um, I was nominated. I was one of the nominated people. Guess how many votes I got? Two. (laughs) Um, and, uh, the other, um, seven votes went to a guy who I don't know. I mean, he could be a lovely person, um, but he's not an educator. And, um, you know, look, it's hearsay. I don't know what he's like. That to me is still boggling, mind boggling. But I know it's true probably in most school boards is there are very often no educators on the school board, which makes no sense. Like, like why wouldn't you want? None whatsoever. Like, I I mean, so this is all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to hold my rant brief. I've had I've had this rant for years, which is, I get that there's a need that they're public schools and our tax dollars go to pay for those schools, so we should have representation and say in how they're run. Um, but that's also true of hospitals, and you don't see a hospital board that is all any Tom, Dick, and Harry signing up and saying I want to be on it. Like it has representatives from all stakeholders, but then you have people who know what they're doing. And our court system is also publicly run, but that's not overseen by anybody who signs up and says they want to oversee it. Yet we allow, but we do that for our schools. And it's insane in my not so humble opinion. Yeah. No, I think you're, you're right. And I, you know, and years ago I had gone to this uh, conference and somebody was talking about school boards and they're like, look, there, there are a couple kinds of people who want to be on school boards. Some of them 
want to do it as a stepping stone to other political offices. So they're, you know, they're, this is like their baby step in. There are some people who have very strong, like, you know, political or religious beliefs that they're trying to impose. And then there are people who just like are trying to do a good thing. Um, and I, you know, I don't know how true that is because I haven't, you know, it's just anecdotal, but it does sort of feel like that. Um, and, you know, we had the the two school board members that I would see as allies right now, neither one of them are running again. So they're like, we broke them. Yeah. Right. And you hate to say it, but, and it shouldn't be political, but a school board is very political, uh, you know, it's, and it's, and they tend to be, you know, people who have a lot of, you know, real estate brokers or whatever. So they're interested in how the tax funds, I guess, are being spent. And there's stakeholders who care. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to rip on school board members. Like, they're, I mean, they're folks, I mean, but they come from a typically a singular perspective. I think your realtor example is a great one. Um, because if I'm a realtor, I want to make sure that home values stay up. And so that's going to motivate me to get involved. Um, or, I mean, folks who have like a lot of single issue people tend to run for school board because something happened to someone in their family or one of their kids and they want to fix that thing that they believe is is broken. So I ran for school board for similar reasons as you, but from an opposite dynamic. I ran because our school board had no educators on it at the time. And ours, but it was this opposite in terms of the school board never questioned anything the school did. Because, all right, this is going to sound really cynical. Uh, sorry, Iowans. But we were okay because the white kids were doing okay and the rich kids were getting what they needed. And, you know, that other 20%, well, you know, that's pretty good for a town our size. Um, and so no one questioned anything. And so I ran because I'm like, well, somebody who knows with some background to be able to ask the right questions, not that the schools were doing anything wrong and not because I wanted to um, – fly against and be an adversary to the administration. But I'm like, well, somebody should at least ask the right questions. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So what is both of your experiences from the, like, you, you decide to run, you get in, and what did you not expect to happen, happen? Well, I'm not in. I mean, I'm running. Well, you're running, but just in the whole running process, I'm assuming based on on things that I see on your Facebook. So she has a great Facebook post. I'll post that as well um, for her running. You're, you're posting really inf important information, like trying to get the word out, what it means, you know, all, all that. So is that something that you've discovered? Is that people don't really even understand what they're voting for when they vote for school board members? Yes, I, I absolutely think that's true. There are some kooky things like a school board is, well, first of all, I didn't even know that this was an office that needed to, like, was an election. That was like a whole <laughs> other thing. You know, a couple of years ago, I showed up at the school board meeting where um, so there were a couple new school board members and they were getting sworn in. And I'm like, what is this? Like their hand on a Bible and everything. <laughs> like this is not, you know, I did not even know what that was. So there, so school board members, it's one of the few offices that can cross file. And to Tim's point earlier, or maybe it was you who said it, Karen, like school board members should, it shouldn't be partisan. It is political, right? Everything's political, but it shouldn't be partisan. And I think in an effort to make a point that it shouldn't be partisan, school board members are allowed to cross file. So when Republicans go vote, I'm on the Republican ticket. When Democrats go vote, I'm on the Democrat ticket. I'm on both. 
so what's what's great about that is it does send the signal that you should be voting for the person, not the party, and that you know, and that's important. However, in today's political climate, that is difficult because um, so there, there are fewer and fewer swing voters and more and more people who just vote down party lines. And so if I, like for instance, just it's, it was literally just luck of the draw, I am number one on the Republican ticket. Now, that may get me a lot of Republican votes because people might just see my name first and be like, okay, her, you know, I'm number three on the Democratic ticket. So if people don't realize that I'm the Democrat, my opponent might win. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because people are so partisan right now. So you do have to declare when you're running for a school board a, a party, or can you not? You do have to declare, but you could declare both, which is what we all did. So I have two opponents, and we are all cross-filed as Democratic and Republican. So that that's one thing. The other is, um, again, because it's so it's, people are so um, touchy right now about even like a word like equity. That I've you know some people have told me don't say it. Don't even use the word equity. You will lose votes right off the bat. And I've been to school board meetings where people have come and made public comment to say, my kid should not feel guilty for being white. Well, nobody thinks your kid should be guilty for being white. Like, that's ridiculous. Nobody's saying you should feel guilty because you're white. That's not what equity means. But in our school district, we've got people who are very... Like they hear that word, they hear social justice, and they just, you know, like they're, I'm, I'm fully prepared to have like a picture of me with a hammer and sickle being post somewhere. And then, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, but so, so, you know, some of the things I've, I've learned and, you know, my husband and I just decided I'm not, I'm not going to be vanilla. I'm going to be who I'm going to be. And if the people in this district, don't want that, then don't vote for me. But I'm not going to pretend that I'm not equity focused. So is the school board election for um, your district, is it just the school board election or are you part of a larger municipal election? There are other elections this year, but it is an off year. So there's like, you know, a bunch of judges, there's some council seats, there's the mayor of our town, you know, um, but, you know, because it's, um, you know, it's not a presidential election year. It's a it's a little bit of an off year. Yeah. And so, okay. So the primary is in May. So do you have, you have to win the primary to go on or no? Like, how's that? Work? I do. Sure. Yeah. I have to, I have to win at least one, either the democratic or Republican. If I'm, you know, if I'm, lucky and win both, then I go unopposed for November. Oh. I mean, that's really like the hope, right? right? Is okay. that I, if I win the Dem and the Republican, then I can sail till November. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's not easy to do. Oh, that's crazy. I did not realize until you just said, so, okay, I got the whole, so there's actually, it's a nonpartisan position. That's right. But you have to participate in a partisan primary to make the general election. But all three of you are on both ballots. That's right. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so, but in theory, so from the, let me understand this. It does seem a little, maybe I'm just missing a piece. I won't assume it's crazy. I'm going to assume that it's crazy or I don't understand. But depending on the number of people who vote in one or the other primary, you could theoretically get the most votes but not make the general election. 
I guess that could happen. This is a math question. I, I'll give you an extreme example of what I'm talking about. All right, and I'll make the numbers simple. A hundred people vote in the Republican election, and the winner gets fifty. Four hundred people vote in the Democratic election. Take it five hundred people; the numbers will be easier. Five hundred people vote in the Democratic election. The winner gets three hundred. Who's not the person who got fifty in the other? And the second place person gets 200, but so they got more votes. They got the second most votes, but they don't make the general election because they didn't win either of the primaries. Yeah, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> Thanks. You've just made her more stressed, Tim. <laughs> Sorry, I was just trying to think through how this works. I'm like, so it's because, I mean, I, I guess part of my bias is from Iran. I mean, I actually, it was, school board was different, but in municipal elections, it was nonpartisan and there was a primary, but it was just an open primary and the top two people made the general election. Yes, it probably should be like that, but it's it's not. And and like I said, it's confusing because, you know, in our primary in Pennsylvania, you know, you have to be Republican to vote in the Republican and Democrat to vote in the Democrat. So presumably Republicans are going to show up to vote. My name is listed first on the Republican ballot. Um I'm guessing I'm going to get some votes from people who actually would not typically vote for me. But the same thing could happen to me on the Democratic ballot where I'm listed third and the Republican is listed first on the Democratic ballot. So it, it's very confusing and it, it really probably should just be an open primary where the top two vote getters move on. So I'm curious, are you surprised at the amount of promotion for yourself or selling yourself that you have to do? Oh my God. I, and I don't, I don't like it. Like, like did I you expect that? No, I didn't even <laughs> want, like, I, I didn't even want a wedding because I don't like being the center of attention. So like, this is very uncomfortable. <laughs> this is so uncomfortable. And, you know, even when I needed to get signatures for my petition to get on the ballot, I had to go knocking on doors and, you know, and it's, um, it's, 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 it's hard. It's, it's, it's not, it's not in my nature typically to do that kind of thing. Uh, but that's, you know, it has to be done. Um, because if folks don't know who I am, I, you know, there's, right. then, then I don't have a chance. And then, and then fundraising and. I was going to say, have you had to ask for money? Oh yeah. Karen knows. I, I literally had a Facebook <laughs> post that's an, uh, a bit moji of me that says, can I have money? <laughs> I was very straightforward. And uh, yeah, because, you know, I have to buy signs. Now I've been really, my, they're not my running mate, running mates, but there are, uh, where there are nine regions where I live. And so the, there are five of us who are all progressives trying to win seats. And um, we've been talking about it because, you know, uh, one of the big pushes is, is, you know, creating these palm cards and door hangers. And, and if people are like me, I get those and immediately throw them in the trash. So the idea of spending hundreds of dollars to create trash is like, it's, it's breaking my heart. So, um, you know, so I'm trying other things like pencils and, you know, things that people could use and that they're not going to immediately throw out. But um, it's, uh, yeah, all of that promotion is, um, is, is, is a lot of work. So do they have things like debates or, or, or anything like that where they where you can compare No, they really don't. I mean, we had I've been interviewed by the Doylestown Democrats. I 
Uh, I was interviewed by the union. Um, I've been responding to surveys from people like League of Women Voters and things like that. And so there are folks who are reaching out to us for either written statements or, or, uh, you know, Zoom calls and things like that so that they could decide who to endorse. Um, So I am the official endorsed candidate from the Doylestown Democrats, and I've been endorsed by the local teachers union. So, you know, yeah, so I, I have some support in that way, but there, no, there's no debate or anything like that. I wish there was, that would be fun. I was going to say, it seems like that would make sense. Like, what is it each candidate stands for? How do you think you're going to help our schools? Like, I want to know. Well, a debate or some sort of forum. Like I know when I ran, like the League of Women Voters, how they form, it wasn't a debate per se, but like people could submit questions and then we all sat in at a table and and answered questions as they were addressed to us. But it was less a debate type thing. Uh, my n- next question, if you're willing to share, um, someone sitting there thinking about running for school board, we talked about money a little bit. So you live in a suburban school district. Like how much money does someone need to come up with if they want to make a viable run to go be on a school board? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of figuring that out as I go. I mean, I was very... Um, I would, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think um, really, because I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. Like I'm, if I'm just thinking about the kinds of things I need to produce, like I need to produce lawn signs, I need to, you know, certain things like that. I think I could probably for like 2,500 bucks, I probably can get what I need. You know, but still it's, you know, $2,500. Like that's a decent amount of money to, um, to try to fundraise. And I don't know if, you know, after the primary, am I going to need more? You know, I'm not sure. Like, do people, are my lawn signs going to last? Are people going to steal them? Are going to, you know, like just silly things that, you know, um, I mean, they're not silly, but like it's it's those kinds of things that apparently need to be produced. And then things like volunteers, like I, you know, there's not a, you know, you can't put a, uh, there's not a price for that, but everybody's stressed out. And this year has been incredibly hard for everyone. And so then to ask people to knock on doors for you, oh, you know, it's just, so besides money, it's just asking people to like, you know, to put in time, um, which is, it's hard to ask and it's a lot to expect. Uh, but, you know, um, but I think that if, if somebody wants to run, you know, $2,500 and, um, and manpower would probably be like the minimum that you need. Well, and efficient use of manpower. I don't know. Have you done the bit like going to the, getting the hall of records and getting the list of everyone who's voted in previous primaries so you can strategically determine what doors you're going to knock on and all that kind of fun? Yeah. So the, so the Democratic Party uses something called Vote Builder. Um, and what Vote Builder does is it collects all the public information about who who are the people who who are, vote every election, who are the sometimes voters, who are the never voters. Um, and it, it breaks it down by um, party. And so that, you know, if somebody never votes, don't bother knocking on their door. Or if somebody always votes, maybe I don't need to knock on their door, right? So, yeah, so so the Democratic Party has um, 
you know, they've got this vote builder app. It's actually an app. And then also when you knock on people's doors, like if I knocked on your door and you told me something like, oh, you know, my daughter goes to college in Michigan and she's going to do a mail-in, I could put a note on there so that I can remember. And then I can maybe reach out to you and be like, hey, Tim, did your daughter request her mail-in ballot? You know, so, so there's actually, um, it's a pretty good system. I haven't, I'm just doing the training for it now. I haven't started using it yet. So, so do you have to be running for office in order to have access to that? I think you do because I, I had to. I was going to say, that seems like a lot of uh, information to give people. Yeah. I had to request access through the, the Democratic Party. Okay. Yeah. Things I would not have thought of. No. And then, you know, I mean, it's like, look, we all have jobs. Like there's no, the, School board is not a paid position. It's a volu- It's a lot of hours, but it's a volunteer position. So on top of like, you know, my kids and my job and everything else, I'm like, okay, can someone show me how to use Vote Builder? And then I get an email with like two manuals attached. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. Great. Like, you know, so because helpful. they don't have time to teach me how to use it. So I'm like, I have to read a manual now, you know, which, you know, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But like there are moments where I'm just like, I can't read anything else right now. Um, but, uh, you know, but w- once you figure it out, it's it's not a big deal. Well, good luck. When's the primary? The primary is May 18th. So I'm looking at our time and we're running out. So my last thing is, let's let's use this as your platform. What would, why should we vote for you for school board? What are you going to bring? Well, I mean, one of, one of the reasons I think I'd be a good school board member is because I'm not reactive. I'm a really good listener. And I know that I don't know everything. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm somebody who I do understand education. I understand public schooling. But I also am willing to hear what folks think, um, hear what the people in the community care about, and try as hard as I can to make informed decisions that are good for all all kids that are inclusive of the diversity that is in our school district um, so that there are no kids who are falling through the cracks, that's acknowledging and valuing the teachers and the bus drivers and the nurses and the mechanics and all the people who help make our public school system work and help make it as good as it is. Because as you mentioned earlier about even real estate, you know, whether or not you've got kids in the school district, good schools equal a better community all the way around. It's not, you know, it's, yes, it's, it's home prices. It's, it's, you know, value in that way. But there's also research that suggests that just like people are happier (laughs) when they live in communities that have good school districts. So I think that, um, you know, my experience working in schools and being a mom and working in teacher education and being somebody who teaches things that require courageous conversations and uncomfortable conversations. Like, I'm not afraid of that kind of thing. And um, and I, I think I could be, uh, you know, I think I could be a, 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 a stable presence on the school board um, and, and work with integrity and work with the best interests of everybody in mind. Very nice. You have my vote. (laughs) Well, I know where you live. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Good point. So, Tim, any last questions before we wrap this up? 
No, I'm just a little sad because we haven't talked about, uh, I wanted to have a whole conversation about mental health issues in schools, since that's another passion and interest of yours. Um, not to mention the fact that along with being a math nerd, I'm a bit of a theater dork. So the whole theater conversation, I thought, got way too abruptly yes. in this in this <laughs> podcast. Yes, I love that. I love it. <laughs> all right. Well, that just means we have to have Tabitha back. That's all. But thank you so much. Sorry, I was a little argumentative, but I was I was curious and I wanted to probe a little bit um, just in terms of, I mean, you're right. Those are uncomfortable issues. And to sort of put it all out there because they're they're uncomfortable and difficult, um, but we need to we need to keep the conversation going. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Tabitha, for sharing everything, and we really enjoyed our conversation. And for those of you listening, we will have any links that were mentioned in our show notes with a little bit more detail. So be sure to go to the show notes. I highly recommend the whole, the rabbit uh, down the rabbit hole. It was the, it was the most engaging academic article I've ever read. It, I would totally concur with that. Yay! Um, so thank you again, Tabitha. It was great. And thank you everyone for listening. I always say we will see you later, but we don't have anybody to see. So we will hear you. We will hear you later. <laughs> There will always be those who scoff at intellectuals, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.